From the studio of KPSU Portland, and in association with the Department of History at Portland State University, this is Beyond Footnotes. Join us as we explore public, local, and world history through discussions with professors, authors, and fellow students. Thank you for joining us. This is Beyond Footnotes. I'm Joshua Justice, and with me today is guest host Jenna Bargansky, who you may remember from our interview a couple months back. Welcome to Beyond Footnotes, Jenna. Thank you. It's nice to be back. Uh, Today, uh, we're going to be talking to Dr. Cynthia Culver-Prescott. She's a professor of history at the University of North Dakota. She recently had an article published in the February issue of the Pacific Historical Review that examines the 50-year career of artist Avard Fairbanks and his representations of the ideal American family. Many of his public monuments commemorate Western settlers, specifically pioneer women. Dr. Prescott argues that Fairbanks monuments provide a valuable case study for examining the ways in which shifting social norms influenced public art and statues throughout the 20th century. These monuments accentuate Fairbanks' role in transforming these idealized images of settler families from objects of purely regional memory into a national American family ideal. Dr. Cynthia Prescott's research and book, Gender and Generation on the Far Western Frontier, focuses on gender roles in the American West. Her latest work, which can be found in the February 2016 issue of the Pacific Historical Review, is titled Representing the Ideal American Family, Avard Fairbanks and the Transformation of the Western Pioneer Monument. The piece examines how frontier women are portrayed in the work of sculptor Avard Avard Fairbanks, who spent 50 years of his life creating monuments to pioneer families. Today, we we speak to Cynthia Prescott via telephone. Thanks for joining us, Cynthia. Thanks for having me. So I guess we can start by asking you when you first came across Fairbanks statues. I first came across um, an Avard Fairbanks statue that's located in Vancouver, Washington, when I was working on uh, my dissertation and what later became my book, Gender and Generation on the Far Western Frontier. Um, I was looking at, in that book, at changing gender roles over time in the white settlers who who moved to Oregon between 1850 and 1900, roughly. And in the last chapter of that book, I was looking at pioneer memory, how people thought about the frontier as the frontier period passed in, in Oregon territory, so Oregon and present-day Washington. And I was looking at pioneer monuments as a way of at getting at how people in Oregon and Washington in the 1920s and 1930s were thinking about the past 75 years or so of white history in that region. Um, and looking at Fairbanks for that um, for that project, got me interested in these monuments more generally. Um, looking at, and I started asking how typical were Oregon monuments. Um, and as I started to expand that, I, w- I was really focused initially on monuments in the 1920s and 1930s, um, of which there were a lot that focused on pioneer mothers, as they called them at the time. Um, but as I dug into Avard Fairbanks in particular, I discovered that unlike a lot of the other sculptors who were producing these monuments in the 1920s and 30s, Fairbanks continued to make these monuments from the 1920s all the way up to the 1970s. And so then I got really interested in the question of how did these monuments change over time? And how did American, sh- shifting American cultural norms 
helped to shape these monuments, and in turn, how did those monuments help to shape American cultural norms over time? So have you uh, visited most of these monuments? Um, I have, actually. Um, I've visited all but one of the ones that I talk about in the article um, that came out in Pacific Historical Review. Um, these pioneer monuments are located all over the United States, and I've spent the last uh, eight or nine years visiting them. Um, um, a few of them have been in places I haven't ma- managed to, to find an excuse to get to yet, and so I've also recruited friends and family members who, who lived in or were passing through various locations to take monument photos of the monuments for me if I hadn't actually been to them myself. Okay, great. Um, did you notice immediately the, the variances in character placement, or was that something that took a while for you to notice? Well, the, with the Fairbanks monuments, I think it became pretty obvious to me. I was originally focused on um, comparing the Fairbanks monument from the 1920s in, in Vancouver to others that focused on specifically on pioneer mothers and mm-hmm. surrounded by their children, and they're usually represented in a wearing a sunbonnet and carrying a rifle or a, or a Bible. Um, but in in the Fairbanks monuments, you start to see pretty early on, beginning in the 1930s, men as well as women, um, nuclear families rather than just a mother and her children represented in the monuments. And that then took my research really in a different direction when I noticed that, um, because that's a, sending a very different message if you're focused on the pioneer family as opposed to the pioneer mother as an individual. Mm-hmm. So I've always been fascinated how art reflects the social and political sector significance of the period of production, and I think you do a wonderful job explaining the ideological shifts and Fairbanks' responses. Um, I guess, do you have an art history background, or have you done any projects that focus on works of arts before? Um, not very much of one. I took um, an introduction to art history in college, and I was had always been interested in, in art. Um, I was really always more interested in painting than sculpture, ironically. Mm-hmm. Um, and so my interest in, in these pioneer monuments came less from a background in art history um, and more from um, a more recent research interest that I have in what we, we call material culture studies. So looking at physical objects that can be read as historical sources to teach us something about the past. Um, and so I really came at these statues along with other physical objects I was looking at in, in studying Oregon. Um, I was looking at people's clothing and quilting, for example, um, household technology like sewing machines. And then the, my interest in sculpture kind of grew out of that direction more so than a real background in art history. So this is something that you talk about more in your book, uh, Gender and Generation on the Far Western Frontier, but it's something that seems a big part of Fairbanks' representations as well. Um, that's the these gender spheres that sort of blurred on the frontier after the initial generation in the 1840s and 1850s. Why do you think that first generation held on to separate spheres, and what changed their children's point of view? Historians that study people migrating over the Oregon Trail and, and um, have long argued that people's ideals didn't change. Right? Um, the practical realities of life on the Oregon Trail required that men and women do different things than what they had done at home, but their goal remained to reestablish those roles once they arrived in Oregon. Say. And so I don't think it's that surprising, really, that people's goals or their ideals didn't change that much once they got to Oregon. Right? We, our ideology, in most cases, people's ideals don't change immediately or don't change even perhaps very much in their lifetime. But 
immigration scholars have shown us that for people immigrating from other countries to the United States, those immigrating as adults typically didn't change their cultural identity very much either. But their children who grew up in the United States, what we call the, the second generation of immigrants, typically were more acculturated into mainstream American values. Um, and so I argued in my book that there's a similar process going on for U.S.-born migrants to Oregon, that for those who came over on the Oregon Trail, they come to Oregon specifically to try to uh, live out ideals that they didn't feel like they could live out in their former homes, many of them in the Midwest. Um, so they're trying to get away from what they see as being the evils of, of the marketplace and be able to be self-sufficient farmers. Their children, however, are growing up in a time when technology is changing lifestyle quickly. Uh, the railroads tie Oregon into trade networks far more quickly than their parents had anticipated could happen. Uh, and new technology for working in the field and working in the home is changing the nature of people's work. Um, at the same time that communication networks are meaning that, that young people growing up in Oregon are much more in tune with what's going on in more urban environments on the East Coast. Um, and so I argue that the, the ideas coming out of Eastern culture that are coming along with urbanization in the late 19th century are also influencing second-generation Oregon settlers, um, such that those young people's ideals about what men and women should be like are being influenced as much by these Eastern, shifting Eastern ideas as they are by the messages that they're getting trained in by their parents as they're growing up. Okay. So um, as we know, these idealized families um, that Fairbanks represented never fully existed in the form that he, uh, he used. So why do you think people cling to these images? And what is it about the nuclear family and family values that are perceived as so American? Yeah, I, this, is a, this is a tricky question to answer, right? Because I think the notion that some, something we refer to as American family values is somehow inherent to our national identity is, um, is somewhat uniquely American. But the notion that the society is centered on a household unit made up of dad, mom, and the kids is, is not specifically American, right? Mm -hmm. um, but I think that American culture is um, invested in the notion of individuals as having an opportunity for self-advancement, for the opportunity to be a self-made man, and that many of those who migrated in the, the 19th century, migrated westward to the frontier, did so because they were trying to become a self-made man in the context of, of their immediate family, what we would today call the nuclear family. Right? Um, and so while there are examples of people who brought their adult siblings or their parents along, elderly parents along, for the most part it's the, what we call the nuclear family that's migrating westward. And that's the unit uh, of migration, that's the, the unit on which they're identifying with. Right? Um, and so that immediate family unit is, takes precedence over broader kinship ties, broader community ties, because they're breaking those ties. They're leaving those friends and family behind in order to start over on the frontier with their family on their individual farm. Um, and I think that kind of ideal of the family unit being the basis of American society maybe started out being associated with the family on the, the individual family farm 
by the 20th century, that kind of morphs into a focus of the family unit being centered in a single-family home in the suburbs, um, that mom, dad, and the three kids is somehow a continuation of that independent farm family that migrated west in the 19th century. Even though we know that the family structure actually looks a lot different in 1950 or in 2016 than it did in the 19th century, so the American culture sort of buys into the idea of these things being integrally related to one another. You mentioned that the Wild West became a way to grapple with Cold War anxieties in the 1950s, and even before that with industrialization in the 19th century. Do you view this concept of the West as something that people continue to perceive as innately American? I think it really is. I mean, this is an idea that goes back at least to the 1890s. Um, Western historians sort of trace our, our genealogy, if you will, back to Frederick Jackson Turner, who in the 1890s argued that the frontier experience was something that was uniquely American, that helped to define American cultural identity. It also, he saw it as being a basis for American democracy, that because there was this opportunity for you to go out and prove yourself on the frontier and become an independent uh, an independent farmer, that that sort of set the stage for you to become an independent thinker and an independent voter. Today, I don't think most Americans would be very comfortable with that association with of the frontier experience and the Wild West with being the basis of American democracy, per se. But this notion that um, the West is a place of adventure, the West is a place of self-made men, I think is something that captures the American imagination. It captured the American imagination in the mid-19th century with the California gold rush, that men went to California thinking they were going to make a quick buck, and that was going to allow allow them to be part of this larger... um, sort of coming-of-age experience in, on, the gold, uh, on the California gold rush frontier. Um, a little bit later on, the, the, the idea of the cowboy on the frontier um, or the solo homesteader on the frontier, these are, these are images that are really powerful in American society, right? And we can see this as, as being something that we, that we sort of perceive as being part of our American DNA, that it makes a, the American story different than other nations around the world. Mm-hmm. Um, also, you mention in your article that uh, Fairbanks, some of his statues had more of a spiritual aspect to them. And um, you talk about how he was a member of the Latter-day Saints Church. Um, how did these more, his Mormon values come out in his work? Uh, I think we can see Fairbanks' Mormon cultural identity coming out in, in several ways. Uh, first of all, most pioneer mothers or pioneer women in these monuments uh, made by non-Mormons um, typically are wearing a, a broad bon- sunbonnet, sort of the, the marker that she is a, a pioneer woman for most, for most sculptors. Fairbanks actually used a di- somewhat different image. He, he portrayed his pioneer women as wearing a, a headscarf that doesn't look much like what was typical head garb for um, Anglo-American frontier settlers in the 19th century. Instead, it, it's imagery that was typical in, in the mid-19th century for people who were artists painting at that time period who were depicting the westward migration as being somehow um, connected to biblical imagery. And so they're depicting the Virgin Mary carrying Western civilization, white Western civilization to the frontier. Um, and so 
I think Fairbanks is sort of embracing this more 19th century um, religious ideology um, borrowing out of mainstream Christian culture art, and art history of the time um, to, to depict pioneer women. Uh, he's also depicting the, the um, individuals within the, in, and the characters in his monuments differently. So um, whereas mainstream artists are portraying solo pioneer women or with or without their children in the 1920s and 30s, Fairbanks was depicting men in his pioneer monuments as early as the mid-1930s, at least for those monuments that were intended for, um, for the Latter-day Saints Church or for predominantly Mormon audiences. And so you see a greater emphasis of what I, uh, on the patriarchal family structure that was valued in Mormon culture at that time, more so than is present in, in monuments that are aimed at more secular audiences. Uh, and that's something that carries throughout his 50 years of sculpture, um, and, and particularly, I think, becomes apparent in a statue from the late 1970s that he created for Provo, Utah, um, which the working title was The Eternal Family, and it portrays a young boy praying at his father's knee. Um, but when the sculpture was actually in, erected in Provo, which is um, sort of the heart of the Mormon cultural area and, and the American Great Basin, um, he renamed it from the Eternal Family, which is a reference to Mormon uh, beliefs about family relationships persisting into the afterlife or to the next life, if you will. Um, the, the sculpture becomes renamed the American Family. Um, when it's actually put up on the, the courthouse lawn in Provo. And so I think, um, although the people in Provo, many of them continue to re refer to the statue as under, under the working title of the Eternal Family, um, the official message that gets portrayed then is that this specifically Mormon family that, that um, Fairbanks was sculpting is supposed to somehow represent the best of American culture as opposed to explicitly Mormon culture. And I argue he's therefore holding up the Mormon family, nuclear family unit as a model for what Americans should be aspiring to, to make their families look like. At a time when, in the, in the late 1970s, early 1980s, we see lots of debate about what the family looks like, right? This is concerns over feminism, debates over gay, gay rights um, are, are coming to the fore in popular culture. Fairbanks is sort of declaring his Mormon identity to be a model for the larger American society. Interesting. So your article also touches on the impact Fairbanks had on conservative movements um, after his death in particular. And, uh, you know, a lot of that sort of, uh, I don't know if co-opting is the right word, but um, a lot, uh, there was a lot of controversy that arose from how these statues were being depicted. Um, and one particular dispute you mentioned was here in Portland, Oregon. Um, I mean, considering our audience, do you think you could maybe share that story with us? Absolutely. Um, Oregon was preparing to celebrate its ses the sesquicentennial of the Oregon Trail uh, in the early, 18, uh, excuse me, early 1990s. And um, the Oregon Trail Coordinating Committee pr produced a, or commissioned a statue by an Oregon artist named David Manuel, um, portraying a family migrating west on the Oregon Trail. And Manuel called this piece the Promised Land. Um, it depicts a dad, mom, um, a strapping young son, 
and mm-hmm. and then the mother holding a, a rag doll who represents a daughter who who died along the way. Um, and the intention of the donors was that this this um, piece would be donated to the city of Portland and would would join a long tradition of public art and public sculpture in Portland. Um, and so the the plan had been to install it on what's known as the North Park blocks um, of downtown Portland, where it would join other uh, public statuary. Uh, but this was happening at a time when American society was was starting to question the ways in which we told had long told the history of the American West. Um, this was around the same time that the United States was celebrating the 500th anniversary of Christopher Columbus. Um, discovering or traveling to the New World. Um, and it was a time when Native American activists were really questioning that narrative, saying, hey, Christopher Columbus came to the New World, but that doesn't, what you call the New World, but that doesn't mean he discovered land. There were already people here, right? There, there were, and people were talking a lot about the cost of white settlement in the New World. People lost to disease, um, land taken from indigenous peoples. Um, and at the same time, Western historians are, were talking about a lot about the concept of conquest, that rather than being a happy frontier place where white people are moving into vacant land, that the West was a place where white people were taking lands away from indigenous people. Um, and so in that context, in people in Portland were very concerned about the erection of this monument that depicted white migration westward, particularly given the title The Promised Land, which implied um, directly the connections to the, the idea of manifest destiny, right? that whites were somehow entitled to and, in, in, fa- in fact, destined to take this land away from Native peoples. Uh, and so it, it sparked a lot of controversy. People pushed back and refused to have it placed in, in the North Park blocks uh, in downtown Portland because they thought that that was too prominent a place for a monument that celebrated supposed white superiorities, celebrated um, the conquest of in, uh, indigenous lands and indigenous peoples, um, and some within the art community also questioned the artistic merit of the work as well. Uh, and so there's a big uproar, and people refuse to do that. And so you get a second committee responsible for citing, choosing a new location for the monument. It initially was placed in front of the Oregon Historical Society Museum, um, and that was always intended to be a temporary location during the sesquicentennial celebration. Um, But then people couldn't really agree on where to put the monument after that. And so they moved it for a while um, to the Lloyd District, uh, which was at that time an up-and-coming commercial district, across the river from the original intended location and placed it on an existing pedestal overlooking a light rail stop. And there it sat for a couple of years while people sort of of debated this, the the political debate raged on. Now, one one, um, local news organization polled Portlanders and found that more than 90% of Portlanders said that they supported taking them supported receiving the, the gift of the monument they thought this was all ridiculous um, another poll found support at somewhere more like two-thirds of Portlanders liked it um, but it was quite clear that the art professional communities um, that um, a number of, of people in the academy historians and so forth as well as ethnic activists in, in the community were really very concerned about this and pushed successfully pushed back um, and so they they sort of 
debated and debated where to put it. Meanwhile, surrounding towns chimed in, saying that, well, if you people in Portland aren't smart enough to accept this beautiful statue, we'll take it ourselves. Uh, so Oregon City was campaigning to get it. The Dalles was campaigning to get it. Baker City, Echo, LeGrand, Medford, Silverton, Springfield, Tumwater, all stuck a, stake a claim to it. And they're all saying, hey, we're proud to be associated with the Oregon Trail. We would gladly welcome this monument. We don't know what's wrong with you crazy people in Portland. <laughs> so, um, Meanwhile, people in Portland are saying, no, we're not going to refuse the statue, but we don't really want to put it in a very prominent place. Um, and so after a lot of debate, they finally decided to install it in Chapman Square, which is in the, the financial district in the um, a little bit farther south, the southern end of, of downtown Portland. Um, now, ironically, the place that they chose to put this monument um, itself had a long history of ethnic conflict. It had been a place where, in the 1920s, uh, working women had been complaining of being harassed when they sat in, in downtown Portland Park to eat their lunch on their lunch break. Um, and so Chapman Square and, a, and an adjoining square had been divided, where one was meant for men only and the other was for women only to protect those women uh, from harassment. Um, you also was a, a site of um, protest for rights for um, the homeless um, and, and a variety of other debates, public debates about um, public ownership of space have happened, happened at right here in Chapman Square where the, the statue was located. Um, ironically, in the years since those, that final decision was made in, in the mid-1990s, um, Chapman Square, has, I think, has grown in, in influence. The, the economic um, development in that region has, has been quite strong, whereas the North Park blocks have declined somewhat in influence. So ironically, the statue that they had sought to hide in plain sight in downtown Portland ended up in arguably a more prominent and more um, historically relevant place regarding ethnic di diversity issues and cultural diversity issues than the, the place where they had originally in intended to, to put it in the 1990s. Okay, so um, in closing, can we expect to see any more work from you that examines the relationship between gender roles in art? Yes, this article that, um, is actually part of a larger book project I'm working on um, that's currently slated to come out with the University of Oklahoma Press in a couple of years. Um, it traces pioneer monuments and, and these issues of um, gender relationships and also um, racial values uh, in pioneer monuments erected from all over the country from about 1890 up to the present. And so it looks at um, how these depictions have changed over time in, in, in sculptures, not only by Avery Fairbanks, but by a number of other sculptures, and also asks questions about what happens to these monuments over time, um, watches the ways in which monuments are largely forgotten. Um, over time, and then rediscovered as communities shift their um, cultural identity and the ways that they're interacting with the local society. That sounds fascinating. I know uh, I'll be looking forward to that one. Thanks so much for joining us today. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. You can read Cynthia Prescott's Representing the Ideal American Family, Averd Fairbanks, and the Transformation of the Western Pioneer Monument in the latest issue of the Pacific Historical Review. You can find more information on the February 2016 issue at phr.ucpress.edu. 
The new issue features articles on the early 20th century Scandinavian-American experience in San Francisco, a groundbreaking study of the California missions and Spanish colonial funding, and an address by the president of the Pacific Coast Branch of the American Historical Association, Anne Hyde. Beyond Footnotes is sponsored by the PSU Department of History and was recorded in the studios of KPSU. Music in this episode was from John Fahey and the City. We wanted to take a moment to thank our listeners who tuned in today. Your support is so greatly appreciated. If you want to help us out even more, tell your friends about the show. And you can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Beyond Footnotes. You can hear other episodes of Beyond Footnotes by visiting soundcloud.com slash beyondfootnotes, kpsu.org, or pdx.edu slash history. Signing off, I'm Joshua Justice. I'm Jenna Barganski. 